Chris Doe, Steve Ulsher, Andy Enriquez, and many of my new podcasting friends that I've made on Clubhouse share their thoughts on what it takes to craft a world-class interview. I mean a truly world-class interview. This episode was recorded live on Clubhouse and curated especially for you. That means we've taken hours of our conversation and synthesized it down to this episode of Greatest Hits. This is a straight-up masterclass on interviewing, chocked full of practical tips to help you sharpen your skills as an interviewer. This one is one you won't want to miss, so let's not wait a second longer and let's jump straight into this amazing conversation. Stories, for stories' sake, they're great for entertainment, but they rarely help to create an impact and to allow the story to resonate in a way that will actually allow the person listening to take action. And, and actually, this is a, a perfect segue because one of the things that I did in preparation for my interview with Chris was I listened to a two-part interview that he did on his own show where he invited somebody to interview him. And so when that happened, the thing that was very clear to me is, is Chris doesn't necessarily like telling his own story unless he believes that story will help someone else. And so I, I want to bring you into the conversation, Chris. And for those that don't know Chris Doe, uh, check out all the amazing work that he's doing to empower a billion people. That's how big his mission and vision is and help them achieve the career of their dreams while not losing their soul in the process. Uh, he's had an, a, an incredible career as a designer, a YouTuber, an entrepreneur, and so many other things. But Chris, can you talk a little bit about the story as we think about interviewing and why a story should have an impact and not just be a story for story's sake? Thanks, Billy, for having me up on the stage and thanks for the kind words. We all have rich stories. We all do. It just begins at the moment in when you have conscious thought and you can record your events and words and images and emotions. And so we, we, I think we have, I mean, it's probably not infinite, but it feels like an infinite number of stories. The, the problem is finding the story that drives a point that helps the person who's in front of you. That's the challenge. If you invited, if you had everyone just turn their mics on and tell their story or a story, we sitting there working really hard to figure out like contextually, how does this make sense? The content is there, but what's the context? I don't understand it. And we're, we're, we're looking for the point. And so oftentimes when I'm talking to somebody and, and the person that you're talking about is my friend Annalie, who wanted me to tell my story. And I said, I'm not hiding the story. I'm happy to tell it. It's just I didn't think it was appropriate because there wasn't a problem or a challenge I was trying to help somebody with. And, and so when, when somebody's asking you a question, you have to think like, is there something that's in my life that I've witnessed that I think there's a learning opportunity here and I can share with that person? And if there's none, then you don't tell that story and maybe you tell someone else's story. And, and I think uh, we as human beings love stories. I mean, just think about the phase four or phase five of Marvel. I don't know what phase we're on, but I'm so excited. And these are just stories and we can find our own meaning in the story. But if it's expertly crafted, every moment, every word 
none of it is wasted. And it really builds that moment where we each individual can walk away and pull that out for ourselves. Yeah, I so agree with that. And I I love the way in which you think about it in, in terms of how does it apply in, in the lives of those who are listening. And if and if your story doesn't do it, maybe you bring someone else's story into it. it that's okay too. I'm curious, Chris, as somebody who's been interviewed hundreds of times, I know because I did a lot of research and I've listened to dozens of your interviews, what, what do you think the best interviewers are doing to create a dynamic, layered, nuanced conversation that does provide value to the listeners? What, what are, what are the, the kind of the building blocks or the consistent themes that the best interviewers are doing right? I'll start off with a few of the obvious things, uh, but there's a lot more to it than what you hear on the surface. The The whole tone of the conversation begins with a question. The question allows the person that you're interviewing to sit back, to relax, and to crawl into their archival brain and pull out something and share with you. And that right question directs their energy. And so if you ask a big and broad question, like an open-ended question, like, how are you feeling? Well, they're sitting there thinking, what are you trying to figure out for me? And I want to be helpful to you and your audience. So those questions are too big. Another question is, uh, do you prefer blue or pink? Well, that question is too small. It's like yes or no, A and B, it's binary. So there is something that's in the middle in there where you can you can ask them a question like, tell me a time in your life where you almost failed and where you thought you could not win. And up until that moment in time, they're not thinking about that. And now you, you stop them in their tracks and they really have to think they're searching. I'm not asking for the worst or the best. Those questions are very difficult to answer. But just tell me a moment in a time in your life where you almost failed when you thought you were going to make it. What happened? And as I ask that question, everybody here just reflect on that and just think, and you're probably going to pull out a really good story and you're going to share that. And then it's your your job as the interviewer to sit back and probably just be quiet. Now, if the story starts to, to meander and it's not, and if it's live, then you need to bring it back on track. But if it's it can be edited later, you just let them talk. And then you can do through the magic of editing, you can pull that story together. So you want to help them shape that and you want to you want to give them the little affirmations like, mm, mm-hmm, tell me more. You know, those little encouraging words help them to keep going because otherwise they think, is, is my microphone working? Did we lose connection? So those little verbal yeses, mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well played, Billy. <laughs> well played. I got, I got your back. You got it? And so when you do that, they're like, oh, okay. And then it's just like listening with great uh, intentionality and just like, when I listen, I'm listening not just for me, but I'm listening for our audience. So if I were interviewing you, Billy, and you said something that I know, but I'm not sure everyone knows, I'll say, wait, 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 Billy, I want to take you back to that phrase that you said, uh, my mom is my hero. Tell me more about that. What does that really mean? Even if I know the story. And then that allows you to, you know, okay, yeah, let me tell you that story. Or you use a term, Billy, I don't understand. Can you expand on that? And then the audience is able to like, gosh, I'm glad he asked that question. Or I've always wanted to, always wanted to know what that person did, but nobody's ever asked him that question. So you have to be brave enough to set aside your own ego and to ask for the audience. And that's why, you know, I, I wish I could play for you all the weird questions I've asked that somebody was uncomfortable to answer 
but you you miss all the shots you don't take. So I'm going to ask it anyways. And every once in a while, they they tell you something so revealing. And then afterwards, they'll say like, wow, you're the first person I've ever shared that with. And then I say, well, I appreciate you for doing that. So asking really great questions, sitting back, shaping the conversation. I think that started the interview. And the last thing I'll say is this. You'll do a lot of research and research can be dangerous because you come to the conversation fully informed. You you write out your 75 questions. And what you don't want to do at this point is you don't want to literally go from question one through 77 because you're not reacting to what they gave you. This is a dance. It's a dance between two people in conversation. So if they say something that leads you down another path, put your questions away, close the notebook, forget about that for a minute and just stay in there with them. And if it's interesting, keep going. And if it's not, you can just move on. But that's the other thing that when I talk to people who who interview me, I'm like, I think you're literally going down a checklist right now because I just said something and I thought you might want to know more about that, but maybe it's not interesting to you. So we just leave it. That's the robot interviewer. And if you've done that in the past, I'm not here to shame you or judge you, but just think about that. The person is giving you something, work with what they gave you, dance with them. That's such a great analogy. And I love thinking about it from a dance perspective. I also fully agree that you help to shape not only the conversation, but allow the conversation to flow by letting them speak and not being perfectly silent because sometimes you need a few interjections, either be a mm-hmm, oh yeah, or just a small little thing to let them know that you're still alert, you're still listening. I, I think those are beautiful points. And also, I, I also appreciate what you said about research and how it can be dangerous. And I want to tap into that a little bit. What is your process in preparing when you're going to be interviewing somebody or when you're going to be uh, asking somebody questions, whether that be Clubhouse or through a podcast or whatever uh, situation you're in, how do you prepare and what what do you do to make sure that you're not going to be the robot interviewer? Thanks for asking that. There's um, I've been thinking about this. I use a variety of approaches depending on who it is I'm talking to. So if I'm talking to somebody who's a deep researcher on a field that I don't know anything about, I'm going to have to do a lot of work. I'm going to have to find them on the internet, read their articles, listen to their interviews. It's just so I can be conversant in that. And if I'm curious, I just want to know more. And so there's a base level of background information that you have to find out. I usually start on LinkedIn. It's a pretty good place to start. And it tells you what they think is important to them, unless their LinkedIn profile is totally out of date. Because sometimes you go on their website and it's really old because they haven't touched it in years. But generally speaking... Their LinkedIn is is pretty good and you can look at their posts and what they care about. And I'm just looking to find just enough so that I can have a meaningful conversation with them and then I just let the conversation where it goes. And and generally speaking, I, I arrive with three set questions. Sometimes I never even ask them. Those make for good stories. And I, I think this is like from uh, mythology, I think. I'm not sure. But the first one is just your origin story. You know, like how did you become you? How is it that you have this job? How is it that you have this life that you have? Whatever it is. And then that starts them talking. And then they just tell you whatever. And and then you just you just swim with it. And you're just like, okay, this is really interesting. This is cool. And I didn't know that. And you follow up. And one of the key things that I do is I just have a notepad. And I write down any word that triggers like a question to follow up. Because whenever somebody's talking, they're going to just tell you a bunch of things. And you're like, oh, that's good. And that's good. 
and then I'm prioritizing in my mind like, oh, I was going to ask question A, but this is much better. They're giving me something I would even know. And so I'll go deeper into that and we'll just flow. And if you think about this, if two friends get together or, or two relatively new acquaintances, you get together, you just want to find out about this person. And for the 60 to possibly 90 minutes that you're talking to them, they are the world's most important person to you. And I'm all into them right there. Then they feel comfortable. They feel special. They feel acknowledged and seen and heard and all that stuff. And then they're going to give you more. There's a little trick that um, famous podcaster, radio host, Dick Gordon, he did a series, I think for 20 or 30 years. He's no longer doing it. It's called The Story. First of all, he's an amazing voice. And in his very last episode, I was very emotional listening to it because I just love the way he interviews people, Dick Gordon. He, he said, okay, this is the last episode. And he says, the number one question that people always ask me is, how do you tell such amazing stories? And he says, well, first of all, I don't tell any stories. I just ask people and I just listen. And he said that if you just give people one or two seconds of uncomfortable silence, they will give you more. And then he cited a very specific example when he asked somebody a question about, uh, I, I don't remember what it was. And then he's just stopped and then they stopped. And then they told him more. And he's like, that's the stuff that's the gold. And it's right there. So just being uncom- being comfortable in that weird, awkward silence between two people can reveal a lot. Oh, yeah. Totally, right? And I think we're so afraid of that. We're so afraid of the awkwardness, of the silence. So know what's working. Look at the analytics. Figure out what's the one thing you want people to know. And then challenge conventional ideas or conventional wisdom. Because I think, as you said, slaughter the sacred cow. People want novel. They want new. They want something delivered in a new or unique way. Or they want a brand new concept And this is one of the reasons I often ask the question, what is a commonly held belief in your industry that you passionately disagree with? Because when you ask that question, the answer you get does exactly what you've described. Truly grateful to you, my friend, and and thanks for being here as always. Feel free to stay as long as you can and contribute anything else that comes to mind. Uh, But, um, you know, gold, pure gold, uh, everything you just shared. So thanks. Thanks, Billy. Anytime you want to do the room, you know where to find me. There's one person on this stage who's interviewed Larry King not once, but twice. So I'm going to go straight to Jude. Jude, having interviewed Larry King, what was your approach or thinking going into that, those interviews? How did you prepare? And were you nervous? And if you were nervous, how did you overcome that to make sure that you were present enough to be able to listen and, and be the best interviewer you could be for Larry King? Well, first, Billy, this is a a fun question for me, and it's great to see you again. And Chris, I just am one of your biggest fans. We were on a stage the other night together, and it's just always so great to hear from you. And I wish you, along with Billy, were my next-door neighbors. It'd be so fun to see you every day, and so (laughs) you're not. But anyway, uh, maybe someday, who knows? Yes, you know, with Larry King, no, I wasn't nervous. And the funny thing was, I never was nervous to interview anybody from the time I went on television. It was just natural for me. I I don't know why, it just was. I was just never nervous. And I think that maybe, um, I was around the public a lot from my parents' restaurant. My mother had a restaurant when I was uh, 12 and I started waiting tables and even though she said I wasn't big enough to, but I did. And so I was around the public for a long time early on. So I think was very comfortable about being around adults. And the same thing when I went on television, I was just very comfortable with these celebrities and, and all of these, you know, high profile people. So when I met Larry, what was interesting is that Larry's so interesting and, and it's really fun for an interviewer to 
interview an interviewer. <laughs> and he said it too, to be interviewed by an interviewer. So that's really <laughs> fun. But no, I wasn't. And the thing that was about Larry is that, and boy, this is, I think, essential to all of us, is that he is the same off camera as he is on camera. And I mean, there's just really, there's no difference. And I've met people who can, who are not always the same. So I think that was one of the keys to his staying power is that Larry was Larry uh, all the time. And, and we always had fun. It was just delightful. Uh, he was easy to get to know. He was forthcoming with his stories. And, and he's almost the kind of person who, the type of a man, oh gosh, I miss him. Uh, this is about the second conversation I've had about Larry in the last, in the last few days that someone's called me about him. And, and the, anyway, he, he had that wonderful ability to make his guests feel comfortable and to open up to him. And I think by watching Larry, maybe I had some of that because I think as an interviewer, you look for that, that those moments. And I believe in what everyone said up here, Chris, I like to do my research ahead of time, whether I'm being interviewed or interviewing someone. Uh, if I want a news show or something, uh, I like to interview and, and, and want to re- research the host, the subject, whatever, even though it's maybe in my area of expertise. But I want to just know what's the very most current up to date if something's happened in my area of expertise. So I'm, I'm current. But I think being able to ask the questions, and this is what made Larry so good, is that he is naturally curious. And I was born, my mother said that I was as a child, I would always ask why, but then the follow-up question. So it was like always building on what the question is. And I think as an interviewer, you, you'd like to ask the questions that, the, that the, the interviewee will say to you, oh, I haven't thought about that. Or I've never been asked that before. And especially when it's someone who's high profile, I mean, just to, to deviate from Larry for a moment, Billy, when I interviewed Phil Jackson, I didn't talk about basketball. I mean, everybody knows about basketball and Phil Jackson. So I wanted to know more about Phil Jackson, the man. And so that's where the interview went. And it was just, you know, a really, a really good interview because he, he's not scripted. Larry King isn't scripted. And, and to Chris's point, I would always prepare and have questions. And I may have 10 questions prepared. But if I'm interviewing you, Chris, you take off on another subject. That may be far more interesting to the audience, to me, to everyone, than what my questions were. So I really think you have to be very, very present in interviews and that you cannot take a five-second vacation or even a one-minute, I mean a one-second vacation. Be really present. Ask the questions that, yes, that you have to think about what your audience wants, but because I'm curious, I always ask questions that I was also interested in, and 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 then they would appeal to the audience too. So those are kind of my, my idea on interviewing. And, you know, Chris, when you mentioned about that pause. I was watching a retrospective of Mike Wallace after his passing a few years ago. And he said that someone asked him, what's the most important question you've ever asked? And he said, and? Because people are compelled to fill in that space and that void. And not to trick people, but just to get to what people more of what the of what the question is, and people are compelled to pop in and uh, finish answering the questions or fill in what you hadn't asked. So it's a really I've always remembered that the most important question. So that's kind of my take on interviewing, and then and then being interviewed, which I won't even go into that right now. But I will say that being interviewed, we just even though it's like even on Clubhouse or on radio, people always think they have so much more time on on radio, which is true, than you will do on a, than you will have on a Today segment, for instance, on NBC or Good Morning America. But even when you're being interviewed, there still has to be a beginning, middle, and end. And, and some people go off on one target and then another and another, and then it's hard to remember where the question was. So I think uh, stay curious, ask good questions, and, and don't hesitate for that one word, and, and that's it for me. This is Jude. Thanks, Jude. 
gold information. I'm such a fan of you and what valuable insights that you've highlighted that, you know, Larry King was a master at making people feel comfortable, a master at helping people open up. And because of his natural curiosity, as you've highlighted, people felt inclined to share. Uh, And I also really appreciate what you said is to not go on vacation, even for a second, to be fully present. And then when you interview somebody like a Phil Jackson, you know, everybody's interviewing him about basketball. So how can you stand out? How can you be different? How can you ask a question that somebody else hasn't asked before? And so I think all of that is incredibly valuable. I, I'm curious about one thing. As you think and reflect about Larry King, you've highlighted a few things, which I just mentioned. Is there one thing that stands out more than any other about him that helped to make him so successful at his, at his craft? Because I think when people think of interviewers, he's definitely, if not the, one of the premier interviewers of all time. What is the one thing that he does best? Well, I think what Larry did best is that, and he, he talked about this, and it's kind of been my, my motto too from him, how he put it so appropriately. He said, when I wake up in the morning, I already know everything I know. And he said, so therefore, I'm looking for in my day, and certainly with his interviews, of what I don't know. And I think more than anything that Larry had is he had that ability to be able to build on the answer. And many people don't. And I've been interviewed sometimes, and it's almost like a checklist. Someone would interview me, and they'd ask me if they've got their five questions, and they're going to ask them no matter what I said. Larry really listened. I mean, he had very few notes in front of him. He did not do a lot of prep. And he just was very present. He asked questions that he wanted to know. And obviously, he was aware of the audience. He wasn't afraid to ask the tough question. And, you know, here's something, though, Billy, that you didn't ask, but I'd love to put in here if I may. The one thing about Larry that, I mean, there are many things I loved about him, but one in particular is that he didn't try to be who he wasn't, meaning that, you know, he sometimes was criticized for fawning over his guest. He was not meant to be Mike Wallace, you know, or, or an interrogator. I mean, he wanted to, or, you know, a hard, hard news interviewer. He was have, having a conversation with people. And I think that was probably his greatest gift being curious. And then that conversational style, he also did not inject himself. And there's a fine line that we all make as interviewers or speakers on stages or anything else, you know, yes, tell your story. But when you're interviewing someone, you, 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 you might say, oh, my gosh, you have five kids. I never knew that. I have five children, too. We'd have a lot to talk about. You may say something like that. I don't have five kids, by the way, P.S., but, I mean, if you did. But if you start saying, you know, saying, oh, I, I'm a horseback rider, and then the, the, your guest says that, and you say, oh, I am, too, and I like to go horseback riding in the mountains or whatever, you've taken it. You, you, your guest is your guest. You're the interviewer to ask questions and to listen to those answers and inject very little of yourself. I mean, he would say like to his most famous interview with Marlon Brando, which has been played and replayed and replayed (laughs) because they kissed at the end of it, which was pretty interesting, but he went with the flow and, and he built on those, those answers and, and just going with it. And I thought keeping that conversational style along with the curiosity and then really listening. And, and on a rare time, he would tell Marlon Banner what a great fan he was of his and what film he liked of his or whatever. But he really kept Larry King to a, to a minimum and, and showcased and highlighted his guest. And I really think that's, that's the key to a great interview. Thanks, Jude. I really value what you've said. And I think the thing about being yourself, not pretending to be someone you're not, 
not injecting yourself, all traits, qualities that I think we could all agree are valuable. One of the things when I interviewed Jordan Harbinger, one of the things he talked about was going and looking at negative reviews on Amazon. And the reason why he does that is to get a different perspective and and not just any negative reviews, like it didn't arrive on time, but like a negative review about like counterpoints to the book. And I'm wondering as an interviewer, Chris, and as you know, watching and observing other interviewers, do you think it is to the interviews interviewers advantage to have potentially a, not a polarizing viewpoint, but at least potentially an an opposite viewpoint to bring that to the table, to add depth to the conversation and not just being a yes man and agreeing with everything that's being said. How can you relate your, your concepts that you've shared with this polite versus honest back to potentially interviewing style? I think truth lies in friction between two points of view. And maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, but I, I actually really enjoy reading all the negative feedback. I mean, I even read the troll stuff. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder what they're really thinking. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg talks about in nonviolent communication that if you listen with your giraffe ears versus your jackal ears, you'll hear everything as a please or a thank you. Please, like I need some help to understand this or thank you, that was amazing. And I, and I find it, it's like, it's hard to live in that space where you want to eat up all the positive life-affirming comments that you get and how you're the world's greatest fill in the blank but then you can't handle the negative feedback. It's like, that is one way of processing. So there's a lot of creative people, actors, famous people who, who say they cannot read the reviews because they're just too sensitive. And, and that's okay to know that about yourself. They're so vulnerable and that's what makes them really good actors. But for me, it's like when somebody says, you know, this was unclear, um, the music was too loud or that ending didn't pay it off or uh, this is like a crazy capitalist point of view. I'm, I'm thinking... Well, how do, how how do I solve this problem for them? Is there something here? And if I hear it enough and I have a solution, uh, that can create a great piece of content. But I, I think if we're all just looking for confirmation bias, it's really not going to be helpful in the development totally. of our, ourselves and our intellect. So I, I like to swim where it's really negative, but it's not for everybody. We're we're the warning here because it can be brutal on the internet, as everybody knows. Well, and you, you, <laughs> to say you embrace it is putting it mildly. I, when I was doing my research, I found the, is Chris Doe, Doe a fraud? And then not only does this Reddit post exist, but you yourself have made content around that particular post, both on Twitter and YouTube. So, uh, yeah, I think it does take a certain amount of thick skin, but at the same time, no one will please everyone. And there is a, a certain amount of interest that we all have in, in witnessing and seeing two perspectives, two points of views. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm so with you on that. I want to go over to our friend, Andy. Andy, I, I know you probably can't stay long, but feel free to stay as long as you can. I appreciate you being here in this room. Uh, this is like a who's who of who I've interviewed. I just had the inter- a chance to interview you recently, but as somebody that has been interviewed a lot, I'm curious what stands out as some of the key characteristics of people who are interviewing you in a way that you feel is best serving the audience, what you've observed and what highlights you can share with the audience that would potentially give them some value over to you. Absolutely, Billy. And and one of the things I just wanted to say, I've just been absolutely loving this uh, conversation. It's so good to see uh, such profound thought thinkers here in the room. And as you guys were talking, I was just really sort of reflecting back on interviews that I've listened to and also the times that I've been interviewed. 
And I said, you know, what do I believe is the sort of the X factor? And what I find is that when we think about or when I reflect and I think about what really makes a great interviewer, it's not sexy sounding. It's not like this crazy out of the box, like that's what makes them amazing. It's actually like some of the most simple things. But I believe that those who master that level of simplicity are the ones that really at the end of the day end up being at that place of mastery. And one of them is this, you know, just this idea of being curious, right? And I'm pretty sure this has been said over and over again. There's this like true, genuine curiosity behind and in in every single question that is being asked. And that curiosity has a way of pulling something else out of the person that's being interviewed, as opposed to someone who is just trying to get through their list of pre-written questions and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with having frameworks and having questions to stay on topic, but we have to have that um, at least um, willingness to go down another path because curiosity leads us there. The other thing is, is this level of awareness. And when I say awareness, I feel like the best interviewers are doing a dual listening. They're listening for themselves. And at the same time, they're listening for the audience. Now, this is interesting, right? Because they've got to be listening for themselves to be fully present in the conversation. But they also, at the same time, have to be thinking for a moment, how is the audience hearing this? And they have to be intentional about sometimes deviating from the plan to best serve the audience. You know, there's an expression that one of my mentors used to tell me all the time, and it's this idea of never allow what you want to say to get in the way of what the audience needs to hear. And if I were to think about how does that apply to somebody who's interviewing someone, you know, never allow what you want to ask to get in the way of what the audience would love to hear the answer to. And the reason why I bring that up is I have seen some great interviews that in the middle of the interview, they ended up sort of going in a different direction. And for me, listening into the interview, I was like, oh my gosh, this has gotten amazing. But the person who was conducting the interview always wanted to revert back to their previous set of questions because they did not trust themselves enough to sort of go off script. And that's when I felt like the the actual interview was the most engaging. The other thing is, is this, this concept of this research and the preparation it goes, you know, it gets really, really easy. And that was the thing that I could really say that I really appreciated when I had the opportunity to come on your podcast recently, Billy, was that I could tell that you didn't just do like surface level interview or research on me, right? It wasn't surface level research. Like you spent some time digging in and not only digging in, but digging in intentionally saying, what can I ask him? What can I find that he probably hasn't been asked before in an interview? And so most of the time, if you've been on a bunch of interviews, after a while, you're like, you pretty much know every question they're going to ask, the same old questions and so forth. And then what happens is somebody has the opportunity to see several interviews, 
then they're pretty much hearing the same thing over. But a great interviewer can bring a different perspective that if you watch the previous five interviews of the person that you say, oh my gosh, they, I didn't hear them share this before because that interviewer brought something else out of them. And that was something that, you know, is really cool. Like, you know, Billy, when you asked me just like the question about my father, right? No one asked me that question, right? <laughs> about, you know, my father. And it also, I was curious, like, man, where, where did he find that? I'm trying to reflect back, like, when did I share? I had to share at some point, but <laughs> I shared uh, so infrequently, like, how did he find it? And it's just this notion. And I think that it's those subtle things that we would check off. And I think we went to anybody and said, hey, what makes a good interview? They say, yeah, they got to be they got to be curious. Uh, they got to be willing to deviate and go off the script. They got to be willing to do some research. Yeah, that sounds yeah, that sounds real simple. But the masters at it, like they really, truly do that. And they build that sort of like internal sort of trust and they instinctively know what to do. And that is where the power lies. The instinct is different between knowing what to do and instinctively knowing what direction to go to. So when I look back, that's what I think are, are the real differentiators. And I think they're super, super subtle. And it's just a matter of who does it best. So this is Andy and I'm done speaking. Thanks, Andy. Wow, man. Uh, so much there. I, I love the importance of awareness, right? I mean, that is so, so, so important. And you highlight this dual listenership that you have to have, which is you're listening for yourself, listening for the audience. And I, I loved, this is a quote, never allow what you want to say, get in, the, get in the way of what the audience needs or wants to hear, right? And I, I think this goes back to what Chris was saying, right? If you have a list of 75 questions and you're trying to go through all 75 you're going to constantly be reverting back to your questions as opposed to listening and being able to dance with the person that you're having a conversation with. It can't be an, I mean, it can be an interrogation, but that's a different style. And I, I personally think that the type of interviews that really create a, a beautiful dance are the ones in which you're listening and you're not so wedded, so married to your list of questions that you can't deviate or go off script. So, so beautifully said. I'm going to go to someone who's been on hundreds and hundreds of podcasts, and that's my friend, Brendan. Uh, I actually met Brendan because he was introduced to me by somebody who had him on a podcast. And the minute I met Brendan, within five minutes, I go, I have to interview him. I, and I also said, I, I think this guy's going to be famous one day. He's just, he's got that special it factor. And for those who know him, you know, he's a communication specialist, a public speaking expert, and somebody that really understands the value and importance of being able to express yourself in a way that will make an impact. So I'm curious, Brendan, as you look at your hundreds and hundreds of interviews, who stands out and don't say me, okay, like who stands out from all the people that have interviewed you or what have they done to stand out that allows them to create the experience that I think we all crave as a podcast listener? First of all, Billy, let me just say, whew, the value in this room is astronomical. So a couple of points I just want to add here before we get to the question is, you know, Chris Doe talked a lot about some of the principles he uses in interviews. And my advice to all of you is don't just write down the principles. Go and watch the guy in action. Two interviews in particular I recommend that I personally enjoyed was the one Chris did with Blair Ends. That was just phenomenal. It's just a masterpiece. 
check that one out. And the second one he did was with Seth Godin. In that episode, what you'll realize is Chris really pushes Seth to ask questions or answer questions that he hasn't answered yet. And you're going to love that back and forth and how Chris tries to get those answers out of him. It's super masterful. So, Chris, thanks so much for being here. And, of course, you, Andy, amazing, amazing insights. As always, my friend and Jude, loved your take about Larry King and lots of the lessons that we can learn from him and how we can all be better interviewers. That was awesome. You know, you know, Billy, it's hard to pick. You're you're the one of the top people that did interview, I'll be honest. But I think what I will say as a principle is that the best interviewers understand the experience from the guest's perspective. You know, I always like to say that if you want to be a better interviewer, learn to be a better guest. Because once you start guesting on different shows, you start to realize and differentiate between Interviews were doing a really good job and the interviews are going, hey, why did they do that? Wait, why are they asking me for my bio, my social media links and all that stuff when they could just spend five minutes? And what you'll start to realize very quickly, especially from the perspective as a guest, is that the littlest things make the biggest difference. And I'll tell you all a little secret that most people who have done a lot of shows don't really talk about. It's that we make quick judgments about who our interviewer is going to be. Because if you're doing 10 shows or 7 shows or 5 shows in the day, you might not have time to go through every single interviewer and their episodes. You're just kind of just going through the day. So if all if 4 out of 5 of those people are saying, hey, can you send me your bio? Can you fill out this form? Can you do all these things? The person's immediate reaction as a guest is, oh, God. Like this interview is going to be long and you've already lost the interview. So I think it's important to think about from an interviewer's perspective, how can we make the guest experience 10 on 10 long before the interview actually happens? And I think that's very interesting. And Billy and Chris on stage are a good example of this, where Billy first conditions Chris in Clubhouse to show that he's a really good interviewer. So in Chris's mind, it's, oh, when I jump into this interview with Billy, it's going to be really good. So I think that guest experience from day one is a good example of how you can be better at interviewing as well. The other piece is listening to multiple episodes from the person you're going to interview. And the reason you want to listen to those episodes is not necessarily just because of the content, but because of how different people have taken a jab at the way that this person has been interviewed. So that way it gives you a new perspective on a new thinking on how you can add your own flavor to that interview. So a good example with Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, for anyone, which I'm sure a lot of you do want to interview him, you'll notice that the vast majority of the ways that he's been interviewed is relatively the same. And then there's a very small percentage, the cream at the top of interviews who do just a very unique job with, I'll give you a couple examples you can write down. Tom Bilyeu did an excellent job interviewing Gary V. Another good example is Sean from The Hot Ones, that Chicken Wing YouTube channel. That dude is like an amazing interviewer, which brings me to number three. Learn from the masters and learn from as many different kinds of interviewers as possible. And always ask yourself, and this is the most important piece, don't just listen to the interview. Always ask yourself, what's one thing I can take away from this interview and reapply into my own interview style? If you do all these three things, I think you'll be incredible. Over to you, Billy. You just like spicy chicken wings. That's why you like that guy. No, that's, that's also true. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so, hey, Brendan, let me, let me paint a picture for those who don't know. In fact, I'm going to let you paint the picture. Before you were becoming a guest and focused on your YouTube channel and doing all the things you're doing now, 
you spent an insane amount of time listening to podcasts. Can you tell everyone who doesn't know this how much time you listen to podcasts? You're a young guy. I mean, you're 20 years younger than me. And and you spent, while a lot of people are partying and doing crazy things, and you know, as a teenager and young, young adult, you were downloading information and learning from titans in the podcasting space. So you just highlighted a few. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what your intake was from a podcast perspective, one, and then two, can you give us a bit more flavor of who we should be listening to from a just a, a standpoint of our own growth and learning. And if you have specific episodes that great, that's great. Or specific styles that you want to highlight. Cause I think you have a really good grasp on which interviewers we should be studying. And I think it would be valuable for everyone listening right now. If you could highlight that over to you. Yeah, of course, Billy happy to do that. So I think at first let's, let's call it more of a principle so people can learn this and like take a tangible exercise. And then I'm happy to give examples. So the principle that I was a, that I've always applied in my short life on earth is what I call skipping the line. Why make the mistakes of people that are older than you when the people are older than you are cheering for you? There's a reason why Billy, Mason, Chris, Marion, and Andy are taking time of their busy schedules to give you advice. It's because they like you. Even if they don't know you, you have to assume they like you because they don't want you to make the same mistakes they did. So when I was growing up, maybe 16, 17, 18 years old, and I started listening to podcasts, that was the perspective I always took. Seth Godin calls this the difference between a mentor and a hero. So a mentor is someone you generally have a relationship with, whereas a hero is someone that you admire from afar, that you learn from, but you probably won't get the chance to meet. And I love that definition. So I think the more that we start to embrace our heroes and picture them as people that are trying to help us, even if they don't know who we are, that's when we start to really soak in that information. And that's what I did at a young age. I listened to, you know, thousands of podcast interviews, and it's a ritual I still have to this day, I guess, until Clubhouse started and took a lot of my time. But usually it's 10 hours of podcasts every week. Most of the people I used to listen to, and I still do to this day, is Lewis Howes, I think is a masterful interviewer for anyone to listen to. I think the way that he thinks about every nuance and the way he interviews people is super fascinating. An example of that that he shares, you can DM me on Instagram, I'll send you one of his episodes, it's really good, where he intentionally puts himself in front of the person when he interviews them, when it's in person, so that he can look directly at them in the eyes and build a different type of relationship and rapport. And that's how he got Kobe Bryant to open up a lot about love and affection, all these weird different topics that Kobe isn't used to talking about. That's just an example. But the way this applies into a tactic for everyone in the room, because everyone has different styles in the, the interview or prefer different styles of interviewing. Like I like Chris's very direct, no BS type approach of interviewing, where other people prefer different types of styles. So I think the principle here is make a list of the top three interviews that you personally admire that you are seeking to become, and then ask yourself, go the extra mile, and don't say wow when you look at these people. Don't say wow when you look at Larry King. Don't say wow when you look at Lewis Howes. Ask how. Focus more on the process. What are these people doing tactically to get to that next level in interview? How are they investing in their personal development? What are they actually doing behind the scenes? And the more you start to ask how, the more you start to get those tangible tips from each of those three interviewers, and the more you start to apply them to yourself, the faster you'll get to the interviewer you're meant to become. 
pausing my mic over to you, Billy. So, so glad you, you said all of that. And, and one of the things that I, I want to tap into before we go to our next speaker and Brendan, Lex Friedman was, was on the stage with us recently. For those that don't know Lex, he has an amazing podcast, 400,000 downloads per episode. He was interviewed last year on, on Joe Rogan and, and has, you know, on, I believe a couple times. But one of the things that stands out from when he was on stage with us is what he took away from what you shared about the pre-interview. Can you highlight that for those that weren't here when that discussion happened? Because I think it's valuable for everyone to listen because I think that's a great initial form of the interview that we can't forget. Absolutely, man. I'm actually happy to expand on those thoughts too. Always love the way that you remember information, bring it back for the purpose of the collective. That's awesome, Billy. Always great to, to see these questions. So essentially what I'd said in that room, and this is not something you can do with every guest, but I think it's more the mindset that counts, which is how can you impress the person you're about to interview with small little gestures that shows you're willing to go the extra mile? Here's a question that Lewis Howes asks every single guest before they actually come on a show. And the question is, how do I make this the best interview of your life? Or questions like, is there a specific part of your life that you don't get to talk about that you'd like to in this episode? Is there a question that you've always wanted to be asked that no one really asked you? And why is that question important to you? This, these are pre-interview questions. But think through it like this. There's very few podcast interviewers who are taking the time to ask these types of questions. That's one piece. The other piece is what I call the post-interview that's more easier to execute. I would say out of 400 and change podcast interviews I've been on, I would say five or six people out of the 400 asked me this. And the question was, what feedback do you have for me as an interviewer? Very few people ask that question back to their guests. And I'll give you a couple more questions. You can push the boundary further. One question I ask my clients personally when they finish my programs or services or things like that, I literally sit them down individually for an hour and I ask them things like this. If there was one session that you keep and one session that you take out, what would you take out? And what would you keep from the workshops and the programs and why? So then they would go, oh, that's interesting. They would start saying, oh, I definitely keep session seven, but uh, session three was good, but I think you can do better. So that way it forces the customer, it focuses the client, it forces the person you're interviewing to actually give you negative feedback. You know, back to Chris's point, the power of negative feedback in a fun way. Another question you can ask is uh, me relative to other interviewers, how would you put me on a scale of one to 10? And if the answer is eight, what's missing to get to 10? These are the types of questions that are more focused that really get your guests to think, hey, what did Brendan miss out here? What's Brendan missing here to get from a seven to a nine or a six to an eight? And it's those specific questions and the willingness and the courage to ask them that will really improve your game and make you world class. Over to you, Billy. Beautiful. And I'm already imagining Chris Doe doing, maybe you already have a room on feedback and I would love to be a part of that because I think the ability to give feedback and, and especially the ability to ask for feedback is, is such a gift to yourself and to others, whether you're an entrepreneur, a business owner, a business leader, feedback is vital. Yet we often live in cultures and work environments where we resist feedback or we don't create an environment where feedback is helpful. Um, but thank you for sharing that because that's a, a great way to get the feedback you want by the, by the way you framed it. So we're going to go to Ryan and then Chris to tap in on 
what was just shared. Ryan, thanks for being here. Always love having you. You're a communication expert and a teacher of communication, a professor, storytelling coach, and so much more all around great guy. Over to you, my friend. Thanks, Billy. So much to celebrate in this conversation. There's just so many gems, as they say here on Clubhouse, being thrown out. The ask how, ask how. I love that Brendan was talking about that difference of asking how. When Andy was talking about curiosity, I was reminded of the best storytellers. They're full-body listeners. (laughs) They lean forward in their chairs in ways that the rest of the audience doesn't. And again, Chris, always amazing. The origin story. I loved listening to that origin story description and how that plays into Clubhouse specifically. I'm curious about character flaws and how you as interviewers and interviewees deal with character flaws specifically. I know Chris Doe's talked about character flaws in the context of his content strategy, talking about parables and backstory and polarization especially, but character flaws really interest me. How do you push in terms of not going too far to reveal or to dig deep into a character flaw without actually offending someone? And we have so many skilled communicators on this panel. I'd love to hear anyone who can address this question. Thank you. Mm, That's a powerful question, a powerful prompt. Why don't we go to Chris first, since I know you had something to add, uh, so you could hopefully answer that question and then add whatever you wanted to contribute based on Brendan's thoughts. And then we'll see if anybody else wants to contribute to that question. Over to you, Chris. Thank you. Uh, Let me take a crack at that, Ryan. That's a tough question. And, And I think I can tie it together with what Brendan was talking about before, which is if you ask for feedback, here's what we know kind of in social norms and the rules of conduct is when you ask for feedback, the other person is unlikely to tell you the truth. I just want to be real direct with you there. Unless you make it that you're comfortable hearing these kinds of things and that you're a person who has really thick skin. Uh, because if you ask people for feedback, they're not going to really just tell you like, well, you were six and, I, and you should have said this. And I, I was went here unless they're just that super direct, honest person. So you kind of have to think, how do I make this person feel like they can trust me enough and care enough to tell me the truth? But I think, Brendan, if you ask that question and they say, well, here's how you can improve, then I think that's your ploy to then ask that question, right? Or to go where you're asking them to tell you how to ask them a question that you didn't know how to ask. And that's a very super meta thing there. Yeah. But the question that Ryan was talking about, like revealing character flaws, and it was an idea that just sparked in my mind when you were talking about that, which is if you're interviewing someone famous, someone powerful, someone that a lot of people look up to, I I think we already know that about them. And so what you have to do then is you have to make them less superhuman and more like Clark Kent. You have to kind of bring that part back, like a time in which things were harder and more difficult so that the audience can jump into that story and you made them a lot more human. Like to me, Superman as a character is not very interesting. He can't be killed. He doesn't age. He has all the weapons. And it's just, he's a ridiculous character from a certain era in comic mythology. But what's interesting to me is that when he becomes more vulnerable and you see the other parts of him, the, the kind of things he has to decide, like does he save the does he save the planet or does he save Lois Lane? And these are decisions that regular people have to make. So if you can find that and you can frame it that way, I think they're more likely going to tell you 
something that's vulnerable or a character flaw. And you can also even frame it by just saying it very transparently. There's a lot of people listening today that are going to think you were born to succeed and everything was lined up for you from day one. Was that always the case? Let them open up their character flaws by stating the opposite. And that's also a good strategy to take. Okay, I I don't know if I fully answered that question, but I wanted to say one thing as uh, we were talking earlier. um, I think it was, uh, who was it? Was Andy who was talking? I realized something. Um, I was not, uh, I didn't have any grand plan to create content, to interview people, to have conversations. I was just happy being a person who worked in the service design industry. But I think somewhere in that conversation, uh, an idea sparked. And I remember when I had to prepare for a client new business meeting, it was almost always working with a, a really large ad agency. And they had many people that they would consider giving the job to. And they gave us a script and maybe a strategy document or something like that. And we had one phone call, essentially, to make a connection with them to win a six-figure job. Somewhere between two hundred dollars to $700,000 was on the line. And that was a lot of pressure. And I remember preparing for those things, reading the script carefully, underlining, highlighting, researching. And what I did was I came to the conversation with all kinds of ideas. Later on, I realized that was the wrong approach because I wasn't open to being what I wasn't open to what was said. I was just really driving the conversation to where I wanted to go because I was prepared to speak about certain things. And then I found that when I had a script in front of me, like 10 questions I have to ask, what happened was you would ask them the first question and then they would give you not what you think, because human human beings aren't robots, and we sit there and we we mention other things. And then I'm sitting there like I think they already answered number three and number seven, so I wasn't really in there. And so that was like you need to be prepared, but you got to let go, and you have to talk to them. And when I learned how to do that, I did less and less prep work, and I was just having a conversation grounded in the moment, and literally that's how we won these jobs. And so. I don't do interviews because I enjoy having conversations with strangers or because I want to create some kind of podcast. I did it because our livelihood depended on me developing a skill in connecting with people. And so I think I just used that and I didn't switch over to creating media. So for everyone who said, yeah, be prepared, but let go of that as soon as the conversation happens and, and go where the conversation flows, take it from me. Hundreds of thousands of dollars depended on doing that. If it worked, then it'll work well for a conversation. Thanks, Chris. Love it. Yeah. And you know, somebody said something recently about how, when you have an amazing interview and when you're an amazing interviewer, you're able to help brilliant people share ideas they didn't even know they had. And what's interesting to me is that's the beauty of a podcast or any form of an interview because you don't know where it's going to go. And I think if you're too rigid, either as the guest or as the interviewer, you're too wedded to your pre-formed talk tracks. If you're the guest or you're too wedded to your pre-formed questions as the interviewer, it doesn't allow for the organic nature of a conversation to blossom into new directions that neither of you maybe knew would happen. And that to me is one of the beautiful things of clubhouse of podcasts of any format or medium where we can allow a conversation to 
bring something to life that maybe would have never happened if it weren't for that conversation. And that's a powerful proposition. That's why I believe in the power of a conversation. So I want to open it up to anyone that either wants to contribute to Ryan's question or a new thought. Go ahead and slow tap your mic. I know Alex and Avi haven't spoken and Evie hasn't spoken and Mason. We'll go to Mason. I see you slow tapping. We'll go to you. Go ahead, bud. Right on. Thanks, Billy. Before I, I even speak, I want to just give it up to you, Billy, Canal, Chris, Jude, Andy, Brendan, everybody on this panel. It has been pure fire. I've been sitting here just taking notes like crazy. And I think the best, like you said, the best interviewers know how to draw new insights out of people who didn't even know that they needed to hear it. But also the listeners at home are like, I have never heard that before or put in that just such an articulate way. Chris, you're amazing. Brendan, again, like just fire the way that you that you put and articulate and passion behind things. It's just so good. So I wanted to add a couple of different things. Um, I learned very early on in my podcasting journey that that I was putting too much effort into controlling how I was being perceived and not enough effort into how I can show up for others and giving myself permission to show up as my authentic real self. And I think what happens is you start scripting things for one, if you're trying to control that perception of how your podcast is going to be seen or two, if you don't have the confidence to lead that conversation or even though you may have that ability. And for me, because I come from a marketing background, when I started getting into podcasting, I knew that I had, I was confident in my written word and how I can target that to so many different audiences that I thought that was a skill but it wasn't necessarily transferable into the podcasting space. What I realized that, and this is a, le- a universal lesson for life, um, a quote that I've, I've, I've really leaned into from Brene Brown is how she defines vulnerability. And she says that vulnerability cannot exist without uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And when I heard that, I, I thought that is so true to podcasting as well. When you approach a conversation with somebody and in order to find that that magic in an episode, you need to have uncertainty. You need to be able to to not know what questions are going to come. You can do your research, but but really lean into anything can come from this episode and I need to know that I have the confidence in order to to allow for that to happen. You need that risk. You need to risk that you don't have the papers in front of you. They may say something, uh, you may say something or ask them a question that they may not love, but it allows you to drive into and build those deeper connections and then also that emotional exposure to be real and true and authentic because I think that's where your user base will really connect. And so you should, I think you should approach that with every interview with those three principles. So instead of doing the research and and writing them down for what your line of questioning is, do it to focus on how you can best hack the interest and and intrigue of your guest and then allow your empathy and your curiosity that we've crafted throughout your entire lifetime to really shine through and be confident in how you articulate things. Because if you're, if you're a podcaster, you've been doing this for a while, you've, you've gained that skill. You've become, you've, you've gotten closer to mastery so allow for for your confidence to shine through there 
and um, focus on taking care of telling their story and show them a glimpse of how much work you've done in researching them because ultimately research equals respect when it comes to podcasting. So whether that's showing um, a, a side of, of themselves that, that you you found that was in the dark webs, not the dark webs, but like something that nobody else <laughs> would ever see before, um, whether you, you had a conversation with their wife or their best friend to find out something that they've never heard before, but show them that you have done your due diligence in order to take the care it takes in order for their journey to be best presented. And I think once they buy into that, they start saying your name in their interview and you start feeling like it's a one-on-one organic conversation and a special moment that the listeners and your listeners, we've talked about it before, there's, you want your listener to think, I think it was Andy who said, you want them to think, this is something I have not heard before. I've listened to this person talk like 10 times before, but I've not heard that side of the story before. So I think that's super important and all of those different things in combined and everything that has been said is awesome ways to build the art of the interview. And those are my two cents over to you, Billy. Thanks, Mason. Yeah, man, I'm a... Uh... One, you, you, you practice what you preach. Your, your level of empathy is off the charts your listening skills are off the charts. You're able to summarize and restate what's been said in, in such an eloquent way while not going overboard. Cause I think that's a, a risk that you can do is you can, you know, say the whole thing over again, which is not serving anyone, but you do it in such an artful way. And so I, I just want to compliment you for that. And I also agree with the power of uncertainty uh, and curiosity. So, so much wisdom shared there. I know Avi has a question for the speakers up on stage. So I'm going to pass it over to you and, and then we'll get to Alex and Tarek and Evie. Evie been so patient and uh, Marion, I want to see if you have anything else to add uh, before we close down. We'll probably go for another 15 minutes or so. Uh, make sure everyone has a chance to speak, but Avi, go ahead. Billy, thank you so much. And Mason did such a good job of giving props to everybody on stage for such an amazing room. So I will not repeat. I will just ask my question. And this question arose in me when I was listening to Jude and Marion and also Chris about um, interviewing. I know the importance of building rapport when interviewing someone and that some level of trust is needed, especially when somebody's not a, a, you know, a serious journalist going for the truth um, in that sense. But sometimes I feel like I want to ask a unique question and it might not be because it's alive in me, but it might not be a tough question in the way Larry King can ask a tough question, but maybe it's a question that might be perceived. Maybe the intention of the question might be perceived as the reason to expose. So if I, so it might be like, oh, this person obviously is going to ask me a question to expose me, but it's not from there, from that place. It's coming from a place of curiosity. How can we ask a question that is coming from a place of curiosity, um, but might feel or be perceived as one that might expose? Mm, Great question. So you want to ask a unique question. You're concern is that the nature of the question might give the feeling or perception that it, that your intention is to expose them almost like a gotcha type of question. And you're wondering how to frame the question. So that perception is not what is felt because that's not in fact your purpose or, or intention at all. Andy, I see you go ahead. Hey, Avi, I just, uh, first of all, I love that question. Um, because I can just hear the sincerity behind it, right? It's this notion that, you know, I want to 
ask this question and there's like a level of curiosity behind it and there's no foul intention. However, I understand if I do that, I could sort of derail this person or have them feel as if, if because they're not clear on the intention that I sort of side railed them, right? Um, and I believe that that's when it's an awesome opportunity. We were listening to some of the amazing interviewers earlier that were talking about the pre-interview or even if it wasn't a pre-interview, the pre-discussion, right? And it's the notion of sort of letting people know two things. Number one, the intentionality. And then the other thing is what would be considered inbounds and what would be considered out of bounds, right? So I just try to put myself in the seat of the person who's being interviewed. Um, and yes, if you don't fully understand the intentions behind something, and typically when people are offended or feel attacked, um, it's because of the fact that they weren't clear on what the intention was, right? And, and that's normally why, you know, we have great conversations with friends after the fact, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize that. Oh my gosh, that totally was not my intention. That's not what I meant by that. But there's something that we can do just by having the pre-discussion or sort of pre-framing. And Avi, I think that one of the things that you can actually do is before that is going to take place, you sort of, you know, share with the person, look, you know, one of the things is I want to make sure that you know, like I, the reason why I'm having you on this interview is because I think you're going to create so much value for everybody who is listening in. But I also want you to know that oftentimes because I am really, really so determined to create value for the listeners, I'm known for asking sort of like a out of the box question. And if I were to ask you an out-of-the-box question, number one, I want to make sure with you that that's okay with you. Do you have any, like, sort of boundaries, like, things that are off-limits here? Um, and I want you to be honest here. And now, don't give me, like, a surface level. Like, is, it, is there anything that's out-of-bounds here, number one, right? Then the other thing is, know that if I do ask you a question that catches you off-guard, know that I have the best intentions behind it, Right? And so that way, number one, if the question comes up, the person's sort of like, hey, I let you know that there's a high probability so they won't go into complete shock, <laughs> fight or flight mode, right? Because number one, you let them know that it may come. And then now, even if, if you do catch them with something that they didn't anticipate, it gives them an the opportunity to take a breath in and say, wait a second, I at least know that this is done from a place of love and that there's good intentions behind this. And I believe that when we know that there's good intentions behind something, we're more likely to lean into it as opposed to lean out. And we've all seen those interviews where someone asked a question and the person being interviewed felt as if they were being attacked or they were like set up or they were blindsided and we saw them lean out, right? And so I believe when we can clear those intentions on the front end, something magical stands to happen but I think those two things would be a great pre-conversation so that the person understands, number one, this might come. And number two, I've got great intentions behind it. This is Andy and I'm done speaking. I really hope that created some value. Oh, the power of the pre-frame. I'm so with you. That was gold right there. And I, I personally loved it. I saw Chris, you tapped as well. Do you want to chime in? Go for it. I loved it. I loved it. Thank you. Uh, I, there's a framework that I use to teach people how to communicate things that are very difficult. Like if you have to fire someone or if you have to tell a client the budget's going to be more than you thought or it's going to take longer. 
and and um, it's hard, it's impossible to read someone's intention. And so when you say, "Well, I have to let you go," or "I'm gonna," and you just ask the point blank question like, "How much money did you make last year?" People are, will be taken aback because they have no idea what your intention is. So there's a metaphor that I want you to think about, which is like a, a train of thought. A train of thought has the engine and it has the caboose and the car in the middle. And so the engine is the feeling that you have around what it is that you want to say. The car in the middle is the reason why you have this feeling. And then the caboose is what it is that you want to say. So if you just work backwards, for example, if you want to ask somebody a really personal question about their relationship with their father, let's just say that you know it's not a good one. And if you just ask that point blank, you start with the, your reaction or the caboose, people can misinterpret you and they, they can have a horrible response. But if you begin with the feeling, the things that the thing that's driving and pulling the question, which is I have an emotion, ask yourself, what is the emotion I'm feeling around this question? Right. And you can say, like, I'm a little nervous or anxious to ask you this question. And then you tell them the reason why, because I have had a rough relationship with my own father and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share that so that we can learn together. And you can use this exact framework to com- communicate just about anything. Like, I-, I know this, if I'm dreading speaking to someone, like for example, I run a company, I have to fire people from time to time, unfortunately. I'll say this, I'll say like, you know what? I've been agonizing over this conversation with you. It, it-, it pains me to say this, but I've been debating in my mind, here's the reason, whether I should keep you, despite the fact that We've had multiple conversations about a behavior I want you to correct. And I've come to the conclusion it's just best if we send you along on your way. And I'm sorry and I thank you for your service. So begin with the emotion. Tell them the reason why. And then say what it is you need to say. That way they have the full context. And it's a lot harder for people to misinterpret your intention that way. I love all of that. Andy, thank you so much. And Chris also... Um, that was really, really great. Um, and that's going to be really helpful. I just have one follow-up, quick follow-up question, which is when you guys mentioned about, Andy, you mentioned about, and I saw Mary and you were clapping about the pre-interview and Chris had talked about how great the, how great it is when somebody's reacting to a question that they, they, they did not anticipate. I'm just clarifying that Andy, what you were saying in the in the pre-interview is that we would at, we would say we might we ask for the balance, but also um, say that you might ask a question that might feel like not you know the you know the average normal question. But we don't we don't actually tell them what the question is, right? Because you want to get that you want to get the fresh take. You don't want them to anticipate the actual question or be prepared for it. You just want them to be ready for a question that they haven't received before. And then to Chris's point, frame it from, frame it as he intended, right? Yeah, and Avi, if you were to ask different people, you know, they would say, give you different responses there. But for me personally, I rather not know all of the questions for the interview. As a matter of fact, most of the time, I don't even ask what the questions are for the interview because it forces me to be 100% present and also, doesn't make it just seem so scripted, right? That's my personal style. Now we do understand, you know, there's different levels to this, right? So, you know, obviously, you know, if if somebody was gonna, we're gonna interview a very high profile person, right? And there's this brand and this image to protect, you know, that person 
may say, hey, you know, by the way, I, we need to see all interview questions before we get behind camera, right? And that's the people who are getting, you know, interviewed on live television and the stakes are really, really high and they want to be able to control things. But I think like, you know, we start talking about a wonderful podcast and a great interview, the most organic form, I think personally is, you know, people can always have framings and all that stuff but is allowing it to be organic. So yes, absolutely. Where I was sharing that with you is sort of like, um, you know, I just know we even mentioned earlier, like a pre-interview. And when I say, when I was mentioning pre-interview, it can literally be like, you know, that 10 minutes before the podcast starts, right? Just sort of laying that groundwork that you just said, sort of letting them know, hey, I may ask you a question uh, that's out of the box. First of all, I want to make sure that's okay. And then the other thing is, if I do ask you something like that, please know that it is with like the best intentions, right? And it's because I believe it's going to draw something out of you that's just going to create magic and a really awesome opportunity for all the listeners, right? And and just someone being made aware of that puts them in a position where if that does happen, you know, as opposed to them feel blindsided, they didn't know it was coming, they gave you, you know, people love this idea of giving permission. You know, even when I get an opportunity and I am speaking and there are sometimes I'm selling from the stage, just the mere fact that I tell people, Hey, is it okay with you? You know, if I, you know, uh, extend an invitation to you on how I can continue to support you for the next six months. Right. That is so much better received than for me to go right into actually trying to offer something without first asking the permission. And so that's the power uh, in that. So yes, I wouldn't necessarily ask them the question up front. Um, so that you could still create, you know, some level of, of, you know, curiosity there and authenticity in the moment of you asking that question. Um, I'm sure there's some some additional perspectives on that. I have a, a different perspective on on pre-interviews and pre and pre letting people know what the questions are going to be. So put in put this in one column that I come out of television news and TV talk shows. So we never. Uh, gave a guest approval of questions we were going to ask ever, uh, not only on my shows, but any shows that I'm aware of. And nor when I was interviewed on any show was I ever given the questions in advance. But I can see where a podcast is different, so I can see why people might want to do that. But as far as a sensitive question, if it's something really sensitive, I would run it past. And, and I had experience happen to me on my show. It was a celebrity who it had broken in the news and she didn't want it to that she was gay and and it was a big big story and we were having in what we call a tape to hold my show was live my tv talk show was live and we had what we had a tape to hold because she was in town and and we already had our show booked so we interviewed her and in the makeup room i said you know i said you're here and it's almost impossible not to ask you about this and yet i know how very raw and career-breaking i mean just huge and and she said if you do ask me that question, I'll walk off the set. And it was taped to hold, and she could have. And so I told that to the producers, and they said, we're going to leave it up to you. It's your call. And now I know, and you know, that would be good television to show if someone walks off your set. However, I really thought about it, and I thought, yes, this would make news. This would be good for me. Uh, it wouldn't be good for her. And I just, I just spoke to the, to the sensitivity of the situation and to her, 
And so I didn't ask the question, but that was a huge, a huge sensitive question. I mean, it would have just been, I would not have been comfortable with myself asking her that. But I will say one thing, if you do have a sensitive question to ask, if you have, and you haven't done it in a pre-question, because sometimes then people are preoccupied with that, how they want to answer it. That's one of the things I learned, and that's a whole other story about talking to people in the green room before you actually have them on set. But build the rapport with them, Evie. And if they, if they know that they're going to know whether you're the one who's trying to come after them for something, some kind of dish or dirt, as they might say, or you're really just sensitive and curious and want to know. Uh, and maybe, you know, to let them position a side of the story that no one's heard. So I think if you if they have the trust with you and you've built that rapport, I don't think you'd have to worry about that they would feel really alienated. <laughs> and most people, unless it's someone very new, can say to you, you know, that's that's kind of a sensitive subject to me. And if you don't mind, I really don't want to go into depth on that. And you built rapport with a person. They know that you're with the position that you're coming from and they really they they would trust you. They know that they are that you're not trying to, you know, stick something to them or make them say something they don't want to say. And if you ask that question, you built a rapport and they know the kind of interviewer you are, they'll be more apt to answer it. And if they don't, most people who are interviewed very, very often, unless it's a brand new somebody new to interviews, they will say to you, you know, that's that's a question that I really I haven't talked about that. And I just assume not today. And so, and then you go to your next question and it, they're comfortable with it and you're comfortable with it. But I think if they know you're coming to it from a point of, of really being sensitive to it and, and curious about it, and yet you built the rapport so they know the kind of interviewer you are, I don't think they'd be offended. That's it. That's Jude. One of the things I just wanted to throw in there is my background really is more documentary originally, where there's a lot of editing in, in post. And so one of the things I like to tell hosts that I work with, but also guests when I'm interviewing them is we are going to edit this in those ground rules at the beginning that, um, you know, Andy and everyone else talked about when you explain, you know, what your motives are, what, what you're looking for in the answers, what kind of a show it is to set that groundwork. I also say we will be editing this. And if at any time, you know, you feel uncomfortable with where we're going just let me know and we can stop in the middle of the conversation and reframe. And I have never had a guest do that, but I think knowing that they can gives them that sense of comfort that they're much more open to listening to the questions and it makes them feel like I'm on their side. Another interesting point um, is this idea of the word why can be triggering for a lot of people. And I think a lot of the time we want to ask that, like, well, why did you do that? But um, there's a lot of psychology around that word why, you know, it's like your parents when they say, why did you do that? You know, and so substituting some different language, like I'm curious about, I think that can be really helpful in that same context. And I'm going to resist the, the, uh, the urge to talk about some other things. And uh, there's been so much valuable content given here. So I'm, I'm finished. Thanks, Marion, and I uh, really appreciate it. Those are so valuable. Language matters. The words you use matter. Fully agree with your points. And so thanks thanks for sharing that. I know Ryan had something, and I want to welcome Brian Fanza to the stage. So uh, next after Ryan, we'll go to Evie, and then we'll um, give Tarek a chance, and, or excuse me, Alex and Tarek, and we'll give Brian a chance, and then we'll wrap up the room. Ryan, go ahead. Thanks. S- again, fantastic frameworks and ways to get at these difficult situations. Uh, one of the things, one of the courses that I've built 
was on conflict management. And a book recommendation for those of us who don't have the storied career of Jude or Andy or Chris Doe, I rely on books. I rely on books based on research. And the book is called Crucial Conversations. And I know people on the stage have heard or even read this book, but they outline steps that have a lot in common with a lot of the gems that were just shared. They talk about specifically starting with the heart, like Chris was saying, right? And Andy too, starting with that empathy and that positive intent, staying in dialogue. And then I think we were all talking about making it safe and the ways specifically to make it safe. I know we're running out of time, so we won't go deep into it. They talk about not getting hooked by emotion and staying on the mutual purpose and separating the facts from the story and agreeing to a clear action plan. It's, it's, it's a really easy read and it's super useful for more than just interviews, but for crucial conversations in organizational communication in the workplace. Thanks, Billy. Back to you. Thanks, Ryan. Wow. This has been amazing. So we're going to go to Evie, who's a world-class hugger. I mean, what else can you add to that? I mean, that says it all. Uh, it's Evie Toddy, like hot toddy. And she's a secret keeper, a back scratcher, and an accidental humorist. Evie, appreciate you being here and being so patient. Would love to know your insights. If you have a question or if you have a thought on this topic, the floor is yours. Hello, everybody. Uh, like you said, it's Evie Toddy, like a hot toddy. Um, I, actually, I had several questions, but all of them have either been asked already or addressed separately. So I would really just like to say thank you so much for this very informative room. I hope I can read my notes after I go back and look at them later. And if it would be okay if I messaged any of you guys to get more information as I, I'm trying to do a project and as I move forward with it to get uh, other insights as far as that's concerned. This is Evie and I'm done speaking. It's Evie and Alex love having you. She got into so many schools. Maybe she Maybe she's going to be going to Columbia and so many amazing schools accepted her because you are such an extraordinary human and it doesn't hurt that you have a four or five GPA and probably do so much extracurricular to make your head spin, um, including being on clubhouse, being a force here and always adding value. The floor is yours, my friend. Billy, you're much too kind. Like Brendan, I just am a type of person who spends the teenage years soaking up as much information from as many amazing people as I possibly can. Yes, I am, will be a Columbia Lion in the fall. No secret there. It's on my socials. I'm super excited. But I just had a quick question. Y'all are talking about interviews, questions and answers, and just amazing conversations. Of course, you do so much research on the front end, and you always pull such amazing follow-up questions, but how do you decide what question to start with? Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm, I'll take the lead and then I'll see if anybody else wants to, to tap into this. I, I go one of two directions. It's either humor or emotion or both. Uh, so an example today, I interviewed Mario Armstrong, who's well known for wearing uh, colorful glasses and being a sneakerhead has like hundreds of sneakers. So I started with the question. I go, I have a very hard question for you. How many pairs of eyeglasses do you have? And then as a follow-up, I say, okay, this is a harder question. How many pairs of sneakers do you have? And so it got him to chuckle. It got him to laugh. It broke the ice. And I, I tend to go with something that's going to make people laugh. Like I interviewed someone 
who's from the town where Pez is created, the candy. And so I started off, I said, do you mind if I have a little bit of Pez before we get started? And he's like, what the, how did you know I was from there? And then on the serious side, I interviewed Jeff Harry, who in a blog post talked about a note that his dad wrote to him before he passed away. And he shared that note in a video in that blog post and read it. And so I took that letter, I, I, wrote, I transcribed the letter, wrote it out, and then I, I started by reading that letter. And Jeff started crying in the very beginning of the show. And so I try to tap into something that will be unexpected. So I'm looking for something that will allow the, the moments to happen right away, either laughter or potentially tears, uh, something that's going to add a unique spin on the way in which the podcast starts. And the, the other thing that I do, and Brendan and Chris and Andy will tell you this, having been past guests, is I always start with a 30-second just let's breathe. Just have like some deep breaths, which puts me and them in the right headspace. And some people really, really appreciate it. Others kind of chuckle and, and laugh about it. And, and so I, for one, believe that whatever's happened before that needs to be set aside. And we all need to be super present in the moment that's going to happen right now during this interview that'll last for the next half an hour, 45 minutes, hour, hour and a half, whatever that may be. And it starts with resetting and, and giving yourself and them the space to take a breath, take a breather, take a breath, and really start to just get centered and focused. So that's what I do. Anybody else want to share their approach to the first question? Brendan, go ahead. I think it's a great question, Alex. I mean, the way I would think about it, it's a lot more about the first interaction rather than the first question itself. So I'll give you an example that I pulled from Lewis. I'm always trying to learn from people who are better than me. And Lewis is a much better interviewer than I'll ever be. And what he does traditionally for in-person interviews is he always grabs lunch with them before the actual interview happens. Once again, you can't always do that. But I think that gesture points to a much bigger play when it comes to the best interviewers anywhere which is their ability to build rapport with somebody before the interview actually starts. So I think we start to focus more on that experience before the interview begins. Uh, the first question that comes out will be more of a casual start to a conversation rather than, to Chris's point, the robotic interview style that many interviewers who aren't as great are known for. Done speaking. Over to you, Billy. Brilliant as always, BK. Mason, go ahead. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think in my first at least three questions, I like to make sure that we're not only humanizing the whoever the guest is so that the, the audience can relate to them, but we're also gassing them up to make them feel like they are respected. And I can't wait to hear they are the most important person in the world right now. And I want to hear their why questions. And I want to know exactly everything about them to build that level of trust so that they're not afraid to go deep. Brilliant. Again, and I see Jude tapping. One thing I, I want to highlight um, before we go to Jude, because I'll probably forget, <laughs> is I, I definitely subscribe to what Chris shared earlier. I, I kind of go in linear order. I look for an origin story. So after I've done that, like break the ice question, I go with an origin-based story. And this is why I, I do spend anywhere from five to 10 hours researching, which, you know, by some measures is a lot and maybe some could argue too much. But the reason I do this is I don't know how long it will take to find that childhood moment or high school moment. You know, for Chris, I know there was a moment 
you know, when he decided he wanted to do, go into design. So I knew that was a pivotal moment. But for my show, I'm looking for those life-changing insights, those moments that a pivot happens. And so sometimes it's their earliest childhood memory. Sometimes it's uh, when I interviewed Mario, it was high school and, and, and middle school, and he, he was able to share how he wanted to fit in. And I also talked a little bit about his childhood and his parents, and he teared up as we were talking about that. And so I, I look for those moments, and often, again, they, they are origin stories, they're formative years, because we really are a product of those foundational experience that we have as a kid. You know, Chris and I talked about the fact that, you know, his family comes from a parent, his parents are refugees, basically. And they, they came here and we talked about when we explored that conversation. And so for my show, that works. I'm not saying it's the, the thing that happens in every show, but I do believe those, those origin stories create a great foundation to build upon because then after that, I go into tap into some of the other insights, some of the, the key moments or, or I should say, uh, observations that my guests have had in their lives that have helped to drive their life in the direction that it's driven. And so I'm, I'm looking to zero in on those, to dissect those, and then talk about how those can be applied in the lives of my listener. Uh, and so I, I do believe the the power of the origin story is, is amazing. So Jude, I know you have something to add. Go for it. Yes. I'm just going to say, Billy, to you, thank you. I was, I was actually applauding Mason. I wasn't really happy to come in, but now that I'm here at Mason, everybody, Andy, Ryan, uh, Andy, Brendan, Chris, we learned so much from, from each other. And I, I just absolutely love this. And I love the input from Marion and others and everyone who responded. But this was your brainchild, Billy. And as usual, brilliant. And I just wanted to say thank you for bringing us all together. We all have a different style, different approach. Some are similar. Some are different. But in the end, we're helping people tell their story. And so thank you, Billy. Uh-huh. Thanks, Jude. Well, look, I I appreciate it. And I thank you, Ryan. And look, this is like the Avengers of people, of interviewers, podcasters, podcast guests, communication, thought leaders. Uh, And so I I created a title. Uh, Let's be honest about it. I created a title and curated the experience because of the people that I've gotten to know and learn from. And I'm just grateful that they have taken the time to share this moment. Um, and I, I'm grateful that we've been able to, and you said it perfectly, exchange and share ideas. That to me is the beauty of this platform. And while there are many things that we can all pontificate and theorize about the future and what's happening, I believe that the dynamic conversation that exists on Clubhouse is truly special. And whether or not you know things remain exactly as is or change or morph, is to be determined, but we control the way we show up. We control the people we have conversations with. The reason I like listening to these people is because I know they're thoughtful. I know they will add incredible value, dare I say, the buzzword, and insights uh, that will help other people. Another hero of mine, somebody that I got to know early on on my clubhouse journey, you're a, a keynote speaker. You've spoken, how many countries have you spoken in? I, I'm just curious, like total number of countries, was it 76? Man, that's impressive. ADHD, super powered, girl dad of three and an all around amazing human being. Thanks for being here, Brian. Would love to get your thoughts on this topic over to you. Oh, thanks for having me, and good to share the stage with so many people that are on this topic. And I, I mean, I love this. This is a topic that I absolutely adore. 
Um, mainly, you know, because it kind of falls in that line with storytelling, right? There's so many different variables that go into, you know, asking great questions, being a great interviewer. Um, and I think the medium often matters, the uh, the style, the format, the length of the interview, which is, you know, lots of the things I heard shared here. You know, I love the, the question, of course, that the, uh, the wonderful Alex asked around, you know, what's the first question um, that's asked? Because I think, you know, Andy, you know, Andy and I host that room on Fridays as speakers, and it's a room that's often, you know, questions often asked about like what do you say first when you get on stage right and like how do you walk out with a story and so for me like you know the for the art of the interview like you know i i did early on um you know in my i'd say my digital days um i did a google hangout show uh did 345 episodes of a google hangout show and we interviewed you know the pretty much some of the biggest names that we could find in um the tech space uh around the world and most of it was done through google hangouts and it wasn't actually um until i started taking you know the skill set to more stages and and hosting more events and moderating a lot of uh panels that i started to really have to like hone in i, I felt like i became a one trick pony in the sense of like, I, if someone was on Google Hangout, that was like where I was most comfortable for, you know, interviewing and asking questions and kind of setting them up. And so the, you really, you know, the thing that I developed, that I think I would just add or not developed, but I leaned into is, you know, I refuse to give questions to anyone that I interview. And, you know, that includes, you know, I just interviewed uh, yesterday the, the CMO of Salesforce and we had to go back and forth with the PR team and his assistant. And the reason I do that is because for me, the way that I kind of work is I ask them, you know, depending on the length, um, I ask them for, you know, what are, you know, what are three to five, you know, key takeaways that you would love the audience that's listening to walk away with? And then I ask them, what are the swim lanes that I have as far as what things are off limits versus things that you would prefer not to talk about? And then I ask them, lastly, do you trust me? And that, that's usually the, the place that I go. And if they're willing to you know, kind of get to that point, I'll say, okay, now your job is to trust me that I'll ask the questions that will get to those things, make sure those points are covered, and I'll stay within you know, the swim lanes that were given. And you know, that to me, is, it took a while, right? You know, early on in my you know, asking people to be a, a guest on my on my shows especially you know when I switch into podcasting that wasn't um, nearly the case but you know I when I when I interviewed Michael Dell uh, I still like to me that was like that that's the name drop I'll always name drop because I, I met him backstage at, at Dell Technology World when I was hosting the event and I like did one of those ones where we were just talking I was like I'd love to have you my on my podcast and he looked over at his assistant and was like make that happen this month like I, I I'm vibing this guy I don't want to forget about him and at the end of my podcast he's like you know he's like you know what something I want to share with you is like you know they no one's ever asked me to trust them before they've ever really got to know me and he was like the fact that you were willing to ask me that um was the question they probably was most powerful of your entire interview which of course was way before the interview and so i share that because like to me that's what's worked really well so no matter if i'm moderating a panel i'm hosting a podcast i'm doing a video interview uh for me it's you know i really want them to feel comfortable. And, and I feel like, you know, Billy, you talked about the research, right? Like that to me is the key, right? I want to know um, the ins and outs. I want to know, you know, things they've said on other shows. I want to also have a, a clear definition of like, what is my objective uh, for this interview? Like, where do I either hope it goes or where are kind of the parameters that I want it to go? And so that's really what's worked for me. I usually, now the caveat is I don't give them questions, but I have a whole list of questions based on the, the takeaways that they want and the research that, that I do, I formulate a bunch of questions. Uh, but the nice part is they don't know which questions are coming. And 
never once have I enter, uh, you know, ended an interview and the person was like, oh, you didn't get to all the questions because it's really up to me. So if we only get the five questions and I had 25, um, that's okay because they don't know how many I have. So that was kind of one of the other pieces that it, it tended to give me more freedom for interviewing uh, because um, I was able to remove one of those restraints that I felt it was a parameter for me. So hope that adds value. Uh, I love love the topic. Always great stuff uh, sharing the stage with you guys. Uh, this is Fanzo. Cheers. Thanks, Fanzo. And who wouldn't trust you? Come on now. You're a big teddy bear. So, uh, but no, I think that's brilliant. And also capitalizing on the networking that can exist either as on the speaker circuit or here at Clubhouse. Like, I'll be blunt. I'm willing to bet that had I not been on Clubhouse and Chris hear me here, it would have been hard to get to land the interview with Chris, right? And so I think capitalize on those opportunities where you can make those connections and really uh, build the relationship in wherever that may happen, whether that be Clubhouse or other social media platforms or in real life. Uh, I think that's another a key takeaway to help to find great people who are going to add value to your uh, to your show and more specifically to the listeners of your show. So to round out this, we're going to do a very quick round robin Start with Jude. I want everybody to be sub like 15 seconds or at the most 20 seconds. We're going to say, what's one mistake you should avoid as an interviewer? What is one mistake? And the, the challenge that I'm going to lay out, and Tarek, if you're here, you could contribute too, but I just called on you and I, you might not be here, so I don't see you tapping. So we'll start with Jude um, and then just pass it to the next person. So Alex will go and reverse PTR order. And then uh, as you go, Try not to repeat what was said before you. So it's going to be a bit difficult. It's going to be a bit tricky. Um, so we're going to go from Jude all the way up to, uh, to Mason, and Mason's then going to make me go. So Jude, the floor is yours. Letting people go off on tangents uh, and so that you can't bring them back. Um, if you can't figure out a way to bring them back and people say, well, how do I interrupt? My mother said it best. When I first went on TV, I said, I don't know how to interrupt these long-winded people. And she said, just interrupt them. That's what everybody else does. Because it may be fascinating to them, but it may not be fascinating to your audience. And you may have other questions that are more fascinating so that they need to answer. So I think just not being afraid to say, well, you know, let's to look for that breath, pause, jump in and take it back. That's it. Alex, over to you. Remember that you have an audience. Even if you've heard the story before, your audience probably hasn't. Love it. Ryan. If you're going to ask why, do the work to make it safe first. Because why is a minefield of a question. <laughs> so true. Evie. You there, Evie? Okay, we'll go to Fanzo. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm here. Oh, I was, go, go ahead. Uh, a mistake that you don't make? Uh, yep. um, well, I guess you're asking what we've, what we've learned from you guys. So... What I'm, uh, what really struck me the most was what Andy had said, you know, never allow what you want to say interfere with what the audience wants to hear. So uh, don't make it about you. It make make yourself invisible. So, um, so the mistake would be to what inject yourself into the interview. And that's right. <laughs> thanks, Evie. Great. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up for the people who weren't here. Brian, go ahead. I will. Uh, I'll lean on because I get to go before Brendan. I'll, I'll throw a, a quote uh, from uh, the great Spider-Man: uh, "With great power comes great responsibility." You know, you must 
understand the power that it has as an interviewer to you know protect not only the interviewer or the interviewee but also your audience so that you have to make sure that you are not leaving that interviewer or the interviewee or the audience in a place that they're not prepared to handle so with great power comes great responsibility make sure that if you're going to ask or create a vulnerable environment that you make it a safe space for all and protect all over to andy yeah, I would stake to say the mistake to avoid is is just having the awareness or having the lack of awareness of when it's okay to go ahead and abandon the script. Um, we're there to serve the audience, and when you're asking those questions, sometimes you're going to best serve the audience by going off script. This is Andy, and I'm going to kick it over to Marion. All right, thanks, Andy. Yeah, I think the one mistake or one mistake not to make would be focusing all your attention on worrying about what your guest needs and what the guest experience is and forgetting that your audience is more important probably than the guest. The guest comfort only matters in the sense that it serves your audience. And I am done. Go ahead, Brendan. Thanks, Marion. That was awesome. I think for me, the biggest mistake you can make is being vanilla. You know, vanilla is good, but vanilla isn't good enough. With all the podcasts out there, with all the people that you could be watching, with all the people you can be listening. So the advice that I was like sure at the end of a podcast that I'll share now is step into your insanity. You know, I think it's the insane qualities about you, the way you obsess over the little details, the way that you put ketchup on your eggs in the morning, the way that you just run seven miles a day because you want to. I think it's those crazy things that make you unique. And I think it's the interviewers who embrace the craziness about themselves and their personality that creates that unique flair, that unique passion, and that unique way of interviewing people. Like in the same way you hear the word Oprah, you hear the word Larry King, there's something that comes to you. There's some, something unique about them, and it's their insane quality. So start stepping into yours. Done speaking. Over to you, Chris. Don't be afraid to be a child with your curiosity, with your laughter and your love and your admiration makes the guests feel really comfortable and you get to ask the questions you always wanted to know. Over to you, Mason. Thanks, Chris. Mine would be don't ask questions that the audience can find in a quick Google search. Ask questions where you learn the crucial perspective and insights you can only learn from having that one-on-one -on -one access to the guest. Over to you, Billy. Man, you guys make it difficult because there's I love all of these. For me... The number one mistake you can make is to ask a question that you think is the question that the audience wants and you think that it's the right question to ask, but you've, in the process, created a boring conversation because you, and I, and I, this, this is probably too close related to Brendan's, but you, you've... You've made your show too much like every other show. And I think the biggest mistake you could make is to lose your own DNA. People tune in to you. You're the consistent thread. Your guests will change every week, but you're the same. You're the constant. And so you have to show up. And so the biggest mistake you could make is thinking too much about asking that perfect question and not enough about you showing up and being the force being the, the Oprah, the, the Larry King, the Mike Wallace, you, you have to show up and be your true self 
and make yourself memorable so that people want to come back for you. Yes, your guests matter, but you matter even more. And with that, I want to thank everyone for being here. We're going to do a final quote by Brendan, and we're going to hear what he thinks about this conversation to wrap things up. Before I pass it to him, if you could do me a favor and make sure you are following Club Pod if you're not already, as well as any of the speakers up here that resonated with you, we never say you have to follow anybody. That's silly. But if somebody did especially touch you in a way that would allow you to grow as a podcaster, give you information that was insightful, and you want to hear from them again, definitely click on their bio and then hit follow and hit the bell to be notified more frequently. Also, if you're not subscribed to Podcast Magazine, Steve is offering a free lifetime subscription. Just go to podcastmagazine.com forward slash free. I don't know what's better than free and lifetime, so it's kind of silly not to to add that to your list of uh, things to look at about the podcast space. This has been a, an inspiring conversation. I took a ton of notes. I'm glad that it's recorded and I could listen back and others can too. Um, I have two shows, Inside Out and For the Love of Podcast. Uh, Inside Out, I get to meet with people like Andy and Brendan and Chris Doe and other luminaries, uh, people that have done epic things with their lives and ask them about insights. And then For the Love of Podcasts is really meant to help podcasters on their journey. Thanks to everyone for being here. I'm so, so honored to share the stage with brilliant people. Uh, I'm in awe. I truly am in awe. Well, I really hope you enjoyed this special edition of For the Love of Podcast and that you feel equipped with even more tools to be a world-class interviewer. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation that we had on Clubhouse, and I'm so glad that I've been able to share it with you again in this concentrated, greatest hits form. If you like this episode, please send me a DM to let me know on Instagram. Also, it would mean the world to me if you could share this with your friends by taking a screenshot and posting it to social media. So what's in store for next week? Well, I sit down with celebrity podcast interviewer Sean Anthony, who's the host of School's Over, Now What? He himself is an outstanding interviewer and is not afraid to ask the tough questions to get his guests thinking. So if you want some more information on how to level up and stand out, then you won't want to miss next week's episode. And remember, until next time, everything we do, we do it for the love of podcasts.